This is Eve Lazarus and you're listening to Cold Case Canada, The Box Cutter Murder. Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. 12-year-old Elisa Wakabayashi waited for two hours for her mother to pick her up after school. Ordinarily, her mother arrived promptly at 3pm. At 5pm, Elisa called her father to give her a ride home. When they let themselves into the house, they found Gladys Wakabayashi lying on her back in a pool of blood. There were multiple wounds to her chest and abdomen, and one had pierced her liver. Her arms and legs had also been cut. Her throat had been slashed so severely that the blade had cut through skin and muscle, severing her neck and spinal cord. All of the deep neck structures, including the airway, arteries and jugular veins, had been cut. There were cuts on her right hand and left arm, where she tried to fend off the attack. The thick carpet was soaked with her blood. It was June 24, 1992, and Gladys Wakabayashi, 41 years old, was Vancouver's 15th homicide of that year. Gladys Meow came to Canada in 1976 to study piano and two years later, married Shinji Wakabayashi, who worked at the Vancouver International Airport as an executive with Japan Airlines. The couple separated in 1990 when their daughter Elisa was around 10, but they remained on good terms. Gladys and Elisa stayed in the Selkirk Street house in the exclusive Vancouver neighbourhood of Shaughnessy. Their home was a large seven-bedroom house but it was still fairly modest by the neighbourhood's standards. Detectives Mern, McLennan and Barry Peters took note of the massive amount of blood and saw that there were smudged bloody footprints on the carpet. They found a clearer footprint on the ceramic floor of the bathroom that appeared to be from a woman's high-heeled shoe. At first, the detectives thought Gladys's murder might be related to her wealthy family in Taiwan but they could find no links to any suspect from overseas and no reason to believe that the murder was gang-related. McLennan believed that it was someone Gladys knew and trusted because she'd let her killer into her dressing room between the bedroom and the ensuite bathroom. They started to look closer to home. Veteran Vancouver Police Detective Mern McLennan told a reporter that it was the most gruesome murder he'd ever seen. He said, It was really hard to understand. Everybody we talked to said she was well-liked, kind, and a compassionate lady. It had to be someone who hated her with a passion that's hard to imagine. On Sunday, July 13, 1992, the province newspaper led with the headline, Police close in on suspect in gruesome death of Taiwan billionaire's daughter. Slain mum had secret life and love. For about two years, Gladys had been dating a classical musician from Chilliwack named Joseph Bayer. 
was hardly a secret. Despite the salacious headline, Gladys was separated and 51-year-old Joseph was unmarried. Vancouver Police Homicide Detective Rick Crook was brought in a month or so after the investigation into Gladys's murder was underway. Now retired, Crook says Joseph Bayer was fully investigated and ruled out as a suspect early on. He had an airtight alibi. Police had another potential romantic lead to chase. They'd found messages on the Wakabayashi's answering machine calling Gladys love and darling and telling her not to call him back. Shinji Wakabayashi later identified the voice as belonging to Derek James. If you're like me and enjoy tales from the darker side of history, then get yourself on a forbidden Vancouver walking tour. Your guide will share tales of mobsters, riots, corruption, bootlegging, hidden treasure and unsolved murder as you explore Vancouver's most interesting nooks. From the back streets and alleyways of Victorian Gastown to the forested trails of Stanley Park. Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. The Wakabayashis and the Jameses were good friends. The families often went to each other's homes. Adam James and Elisa Wakabayashi attended the same Montessori school until grade three, and this is possibly where the couples met. Derek James was a traffic controller at Vancouver International Airport. His wife, Jean, was a former flight attendant with Canadian Pacific Airlines, and she had been on the union's executive board. After the Wakabayashi separated, the Jameses kept in close contact with Gladys. Too close, as it happened. Jean believed she'd found evidence that her husband was cheating on her with their friend. Derek went on a business trip to Montreal, and posing as his secretary, Jean called the hotel where he was staying. She told hotel staff that she needed to submit Derek's expense report. She asked for a copy of his phone bill. When she received it, she saw several lengthy calls to Gladys's phone number. This, she believed, was proof that the two were having an affair. Derek had slept around on her before, but the thought of him doing so with her much younger friend sent Jean over the edge. Derek James always denied having a physical affair with Gladys, but he admitted to an emotional one. The distinction didn't seem to matter much to his wife. In her mind, the many phone calls to a friend were proof of an affair and a betrayal of their friendship. Rather than take it out on Derek, or even tell him that she knew about it, Jean began to plan her revenge. On the day of the murder, she phoned Gladys to say that she had a present for her and wanted to drop it off. Gladys invited Jean over for coffee at 9.15am after she returned from dropping off Elisa at school. Jean parked a car five blocks away and walked down the back lanes so she wouldn't be seen. Gladys let her in and they hugged and Gladys made coffee. Jean told Gladys that she wanted to give her a necklace, and the two friends went into Gladys's dressing room. Gladys sat on the stool while Jean slipped on a pair of gloves and pretended to take out the necklace. Then Jean slashed the other woman's throat with a box cutter. As Gladys slowly bled to death, Jean slashed her legs 
and said that if Gladys told her the truth about the affair, Jean would call an ambulance and save her life. It was a lie. She had no intention of letting her friend live. Jean's high-heeled shoes left bloody footprints on the carpet and on the tiled floor of the bathroom. But Jean was more concerned about the fingerprints on the dishes in the kitchen. She washed the coffee cups and wiped down all the surfaces she'd touched. She wasn't overly worried because she was a frequent visitor to the house. She threw the box cutter away in a dumpster on the other side of town. Rick Crook says Jean James popped up on their radar early in the investigation. But while they were sure that she was a killer, they had no forensic evidence linking her to this well-planned, cold-blooded murder. The killer had parked several blocks from the house, come up with a fairly elaborate plan to enter the house, and brought along a box cutter to use as a murder weapon. I asked Rick Crook to give me his impression of Jean James. He told me she was very conniving, and she wanted to be in charge of everything. He thought she was an evil bitch. The house wasn't broken into. There was nothing to indicate that there was a robbery. And Crook says the murder was clearly fueled by anger. The brutality of the crime, he says, pointed to someone who knew Gladys well. Jean James fit that profile, especially when detectives learned that her husband had been having an affair with the victim, or at least Jean believed that he was. The Vancouver Police Department put together a strike force to follow Jean. They used wiretaps, undercover tales, and various interrogation methods, but they couldn't find any evidence to connect her to the murder. The problem, says Crook, was that the James family were frequent dinner guests and Jean had been helping Gladys with the renovation of of her house. Jean's fingerprints and DNA were all over everything. Police searched the James's Richmond home looking for high-heeled shoes that would match the imprints found on the bloody carpet. None matched. A search of the carpet in Jean's car also failed to turn up any forensic evidence. Detectives also struck out with Derek James. He refused to tell Crook anything that would incriminate his wife. Four days after the murder, Jean James approached Sinji Wakabayashi and asked him for details about how his wife was killed. He told her that he'd found Gladys lying on her back, face up with a large cut around her neck, near the closet of her master bedroom. He'd called 911. Just two days before her mother's murder, Elisa had found Jean in Gladys's bedroom when she'd gone to answer the phone. Jean, she said, had asked if her husband Derek was on the phone. Elisa moved to Taiwan with her uncle and aunt following the murder. The house on Selkirk Street in Shaughnessy was listed for sale in 2005 at $1.2 million. Shortly after it sold, the house number was changed, likely to avoid association with a brutal murder. Crime Stoppers ran a public service announcement in the media asking the public for help. The announcement detailed the murder and gave a suspect description that sounded remarkably like Jean James. Police believe the suspect drove up to the victim's address, parked the car and entered the house. Once inside, she killed Mrs Wakabayashi and then left the scene. She remained very calm upon exiting the residence so as not to attract any undue attention. She is described as a white female, mid-50s, 5 foot 4, 120 to 130 pounds. 
A private reward of $60,000 has been offered for information leading to her arrest. Jean lawyered up and refused to talk. Police had now exhausted all their leads and still didn't have sufficient evidence to lay charges against her. Jean went on with her life. A decade later, she made an appearance in the local paper when she tried to stop a proposed development in her McLennan South neighbourhood of Richmond. The development went ahead and Jean put up trees on the edges of her property to block it out. Are you planning a wedding? Then you're likely in the market for an engagement ring and wedding band that you'll be proud to wear for decades. Erin Haken is an accomplished Vancouver jewellery designer and she has a range of gorgeous rings in stock. But what Erin most loves to do is to work with you and your partner to create your own uniquely designed ring. Go to erinhaken.com, that's E-R-I-N-H-A-K-I-N.com and receive 15% off your order when you use the code COLDCASE. That in 2007, 15 years after the murder, the Provincial Unsolved Homicide Unit decided to take another look. Officers approached Rick Crook, who had retired from the VPD in 2003 and was working as a civilian employee for the RCMP. They asked him for his input on a Mr Big operation that they were planning to execute in a last-ditch effort to wring a confession out of Jean James. A Mr. Big operation is a controversial procedure that the RCMP have used since the early 1990s to either charge or clear a suspect in a cold case. An undercover police officer acting as a crime boss has the suspect perform what he or she believes to be a series of illegal activities designed to make them think that they are an increasingly important part of the crime organisation. A Mr. Big operation is only used as a last resort, and it's a very expensive resort. The cost of such an operation can range anywhere from $2,000 to hundreds of thousands of dollars. Much of the cost surrounds a number of people needed to convince the suspect that the organisation is real and badass, and that can take a long time. It can involve staging dozens of different scenarios. Anything from trips on a luxurious yacht to meals in expensive restaurants to flights across the country and accommodation in five-star hotels. And while the workings of Mr Big cases are now common knowledge, fortunately for the police, criminals haven't always noticed. What police do know is that criminals will confess to just about anything if it means a chance to earn large sums of money and status within the organisation. Opponents of Mr Big Stings argue that it's entrapment, that the suspect is tricked into committing a crime. But courts have ruled in favour of Mr Big operations because while the suspect believes that they're carrying out an illegal act, no real crime is ever committed. The other argument against Mr Big operations is that the suspect will confess to crimes that they didn't commit in order to look tougher and more competent to the boss. But there are now a lot of safeguards to make sure that doesn't happen. The biggest insurance is hold back evidence, or in other words, when the suspect 
confesses to Mr. Big, they're asked to give details of the murder that only a handful of investigators and the murderer would know. At the time of the sting, Jean James was a 69-year-old retired flight attendant, wife and mother, living in a nice house in Richmond, a suburb of Metro Vancouver. The detectives planning the sting knew that Jean frequently visited casinos and liked to play the slot machines. Rick Crook noted that she had few friends and he thought she might respond to a like-minded soul who could become her best friend. Police placed a female undercover operative at the casino and made sure that Jean could see her pumping lots of 20s into the slots, cashing them out and taking the chips. Her new friend told Jean that she could make a lot of money through the casino system. Jean was treated to lavish restaurant meals and entertainment and given gifts to show that the organisation was rich and powerful. Undercover operators befriended Jean, met up with her at the spa, joined her gourmet club, took her to expensive restaurants and eventually discussed her potential inclusion in the organisation. Soon the undercover operator was asking Jean for help with various tasks set up by the criminal organisation. She would deliver packages, move vehicles and meet with buyers who she thought were selling various counterfeit products. Jean was then given the opportunity to advance in the organisation by committing a series of escalating crimes against people who she was led to believe were problems to the organisation. They were actually undercover officers. The sting went on for several months and took place across the country. Meetings were recorded and the tape showed Jean embracing her new life of crime and the chance to earn a huge payoff. The icing on top of the cake for Jean was a movie role for her son Adam, an aspiring actor. She was hooked. She even offered to kill for the gang. At one taped meeting, Jean was told about a fake kidnapping and the brutal beating of a man who owed the gang money. When the boss asked Jean what they should do, she said they didn't go far enough. She told him to curl the man's penis with a curling iron and then cut his knackers off. While she admitted that she hadn't tried this before, she suggested they put raw meat on his crotch and let her dogs eat it off. The sting finished on November 27, 2008, in a Montreal hotel room. Jean was told that she was going to meet the crime boss and that she had to convince him that she had the chops to pull off a job that would pay out $700,000. Jean's cut would be a third of the cash. Jean, who had already assured the gang that she had no conscience and was willing to do anything, was told by the crime boss that she had to come clean about the details of how she'd murdered Gladys Wakabayashi. Even allowing for the possibility that Jean was exaggerating to impress the crime boss, as her lawyer later argued, the video of the meeting is chilling. When the undercover officer said he was surprised that a box cutter would do the job, Jean calmly told him that the blade was similar to a surgeon's scalpel. It just couldn't go through bone. In a matter-of-fact tone, Jean told him that she'd found out that Gladys was screwing around with her husband Derek, who she said had been unfaithful to her numerous times in the past. 
she decided that she wasn't going to put up with it anymore. She also said that this was the first time that she'd told anybody about the murder. Elaborating on the crime now to Mr Big, Jean said that she took the murder weapon to the other side of town and threw it in a dumpster. She took the bloodstained clothes that she was wearing and put them in an incinerator at her son's school. Describing herself as very sneaky, Jean said that she'd parked a car five blocks from the crime scene and walked to the house. She used gloves and kept nothing from the crime scene. In fact, she said, her husband Derek, who was naturally upset at Gladys's death, had never suspected her, not even when the police focused their investigation on her. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. The James family lived in an unassuming two-story house on a half-acre property on Bridge Street in Richmond, which they'd bought in 1987. When police arrested Jean James, neighbours were shocked. They described her to reporters as affable, animal-loving, easygoing, a nice person who enjoyed sharing a laugh and spent a lot of time in her garden and assembling flower baskets. A sign hanging in the window outside the James's front door showed a cartoon with a Rottweiler catching a thief during a break-in and wearing a T-shirt that read, Surprise, Surprise. Neighbours said Jean and Derek often had them over for summer and Christmas parties. A next-door neighbour said that the senior citizen was an absolute sweetheart of a lady, one of the best neighbours she'd ever had. Another neighbour told the reporter that the Jameses were generous and always hung feeders for the birds. Yet another said Jean used to look after a house when she was away. This is a quote in the newspaper from that neighbour. This is the biggest shock that I ever had, she said. Another reporter found a former colleague of Jean's who'd served on the flight attendants' union with her. She said, She was a very smart lady and took really good care of our union issues. She added that they were never close friends, but shared a love of animals, especially dogs. After nearly two decades, the former flight attendant was finally charged. During her month-long trial, the Crown called 33 witnesses including Sinji and Elisa Wakabayashi and friends of the Jameses. Jean, now 72, pled not guilty. Sandra MacDonald took the stand and told the court that a friend had often brought up the subject of her troubled marriage. It was stormy, she testified. Jean had told her that Derek had had a number of affairs and she was very hurt and angry about his behaviour. The two women had met for lunch at New Westminster Quay, where Jean told Sandra MacDonald that detectives had questioned her and asked Sandra if they'd also been in touch with her. Jean said she'd been accused of murdering her friend Gladys because she was having an affair with her husband Derek. Sandra MacDonald testified that Jean was very upset and angry. There wasn't a lot that the defence could do, They argued that the inconsistencies in Jean's confession proved that she was making it all up. She told Mr Big that she'd burned her clothes in a school incinerator, but there was no incinerator at the Taiyi Elementary School, which Adam had attended in 1992. 
She didn't mention going into Gladys's bathroom to Mr Big, but blood splatter had been found there. Jean's lawyer told the jury that she'd lied about her finances being in good shape. In actuality, she was under a lot of financial pressure and would have greatly benefited from the $233,000 she expected to receive as her share in the proceeds of the crime. The judge also warned jurors that they couldn't use the fact that Jean James was willing to do illegal activities for the fake organisation as proof of her involvement in Gladys Wakabayashi's murder. It didn't matter. Likely the jury still had clearly implanted in their heads the video of Jean talking about curling penises and her willingness to kill people in order to benefit from the proceeds of crime. The jurors deliberated for less than a day. Jean appeared calm and emotionless as she was convicted of first-degree murder and sent to the Fraser Valley Institution for Women in Abbotsford to serve out the mandatory sentence of 25 years to life. The Wakabayashi and Miao families had never given up hope. Gladys's sister-in-law, Susanna Yang, who at the time of the murder lived next door to Gladys, told a reporter that Jean James had no conscience. Jean James lost her appeal in 2013, but in June 2015 she was back in the news. This time it was because she had applied for and been refused private family visits with her husband of 40 years and their son in the grounds of the Fraser Valley Institution. Both men believed that James was innocent and had been tricked into confessing to the murder. The reasons given for denying the visits included Jean's refusal to accept responsibility for the murder and incidents in which she tampered with prison food and tried to contract out the assault of other prisoners. She was also considered a flight risk because she had supposedly inquired about obtaining a false passport. Jean responded in court documents that she had never planned or attempted to escape, and her family was not at risk of domestic violence. She said, My husband and son are the most important people in my life, and I love them deeply, and I would never do anything to compromise their safety, let alone intentionally hurt either of them. Jean James will be 94 before she reaches her day parole eligibility date. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is based on a chapter in my book, Cold Case BC. If you'd like more information on this or other cases, please go to my website, evelazarus.com, or join us on the Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada. And now I'm delighted to leave you with a promo from our friends at the Missing and Unexplained podcast. Hi, my name is Tyler and I host the Missing and Unexplained podcast, a narrative podcast bringing awareness to missing persons cases and exploring the unexplained. On my podcast, you'll hear episodic series as I did with missing persons Ryan Stuka and Chris Fowler. You'll also hear one-off episodes where I talk to other podcasters, authors, and activists about missing persons cases and cold cases. I delve into mysteries such as what was the creature of Portlock, Alaska, and the folklore behind phantom ships. So come check out the Missing and Unexplained podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.